Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, good morning and welcome to the second edition of the 2023 Growing Season Review. Today we will be talking about corn. And as our guests, we have Kyle Broderick and Dr. Tamara Jackson Zims from Plant Pathology. How are you guys doing today? Good. How about yourself? Oh, doing pretty well. And nice of you to join us, Tamara. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this and more. You in town for a couple of days? Yeah, I am. It's a beautiful time to drive across Nebraska right now. Is there, is there ever not a beautiful time to drive across Nebraska? Oh, ask me in January. I'll let you. Know. So, yeah, January, February, when it's just gray. Mm-hmm. Gray or sometimes Sorry. Mother Nature, you know, sort of grounds us for, you know, half a day or a day or so with the snow and the wind. Um, so let's start with a little bit of background uh, about how you well start off where you guys are from and how you kind of got interested in plants and what you do. Uh, I'll start with you, Kyle. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up um, on a small kind of a, a hobby farm uh, outside of Seward, Nebraska. So not not too far away. Um, I had designs to spread my wings and go elsewhere um, a lot. And uh, but every time it's I, you know. It, the best way that I can, the best analogy that I have for the university is that it's, it's just like the mafia. It's every time, every time in my life that I've tried to get away, tried to move out, there's just something that pulls me right back in. And whether it was, you know, coming here, for, I, I was all set to go um, elsewhere for my undergrad and then better circumstances here, was all set to go elsewhere. As in a scholarship? Yep, yep. And then, yeah, all set to go elsewhere for graduate school. Had a better opportunity here. Was all set to find a job elsewhere after graduate school. Found an opportunity here, and and now it's I'm, yeah, I'm pretty pretty content. So well, that's good. I think we're glad to have you. Uh, but you make it sound like this is Hotel California, the Eagles song. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, I really had um, was always interested in science and plants, um, specifically didn't know what I wanted to do for my undergrad. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe botany or, or something found out about this new major, which is now defunct. Um, it was the, the plant protection sciences major, but it was entomology, um, agronomy and plant pathology kind of all rolled up into one. And honestly, my main reason for um, joining that ma- that major was I wanted to be done detasseling. I had, <laughs> I had worked in the cornfields for about 10 years at that point. Um, That's a, quite a long time. I mean, it's kind of a rite of passage for kids in this part of the country. It, it really is. And it's, I mean, there is no other job where a, a 15-year-old could make $3,000 in three weeks. Um, and Not legally. Not, yes, not <laughs> legally. Um but yeah, so I detasseled for a long time and was just was over it. Was told, you know, if you do this major, it's it's basically botany, and it's the initially your classes will all be the same anyway. So do the major, we'll guarantee you a job in a lab. And I started to work with nematodes. Had no idea what they were, um, and then did a biological control project with with nematodes. And now here I am, fifteen years later. Um, Loving, loving plant pathology and all things, all things disease wise. And grew up on a farm, but never really associated that plants get sick. I knew that they, oh, they're just not growing very well. But didn't think about the fact that they get fungi, bacteria. I mean, the same diseases that we can get. Like sure, plants, plants get sick too. I, mean, I think a new plants got sick, but as a climatologist, I don't think you we realize the complexity and just the depth of the diseases that are possible for even just the commodity crops, much less anything else. I'll just focus on corn today. I know you could probably speak very fluently. I know last week you spoke very fluently about soybean. I'm sure you could talk about other crops or especially crops as well. Uh, So Tim, moving on to you, uh, where are you from? What's your story? (laughs) I'm originally from Southwest Arkansas. And so uh, I've often joked about being from LA and my crowds when I first came to Nebraska and they looked at me funny and giggled a little bit. And I said, lower Arkansas. And then they got a kick out of it. And I've never heard of so, that phrase before. Yeah. Well, I, I clearly I sound different than most people from Nebraska. At least I did then. My accents faded quite a bit. But 
the, you know, the professional. I would accuse you of being from Minnesota or North Dakota. Probably not, no. And if I've been down there visiting family, it, it, comes it back changes a, a lot very quickly. Uh, but, you know, the professional part of my background is a lot like Kyle's. No one grows up wanting to be a plant pathologist. We all kind of stumble into it, <laughs> right? And so I, you know, in college, I knew I loved working with plants. I loved being outside. And I, it all started for me with a summer job at a University of Arkansas research station near where I'm from in Hope. And I loved it. I was working in agriculture and I was doing science and helping people. And I just, I, I just loved it. The field part, the lab part and everything. And it just spiraled out of control into an internship and a master's degree and uh, four states later. And I've made my way to the University of Nebraska now. And so where did you get your master's and PhD from? My master's was from the University of Arkansas and PhD. In Fayetteville. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, then my I started my PhD at the University of, uh, University of Missouri, and my advisor took a position at Illinois. So I moved with her to the University of Illinois, where I finished up my PhD and was hired out of there to come to Nebraska. So kind of made a circle. Uh, and uh, this is my this is my forever home now, my I've married a farmer. I can't move him. He's pretty, uh, he's pretty stuck, you know, so yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a permanent resident and I love it. Got here as quick as I could. Good. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, so let's talk about corn. I'll just briefly just kind of talk about the weather a little bit. Um, you know, it was in some ways probably better than last year. So we definitely had, we had very good precipitation in July and you know, the general rule of thumb is if you have good precipitation in July, you have a good corn crop. Now that's, but the caveat that you started the year with good root zone and soil moisture, which is really not the case for a good portion of the state. I mean, other than maybe parts of the far southeast, um, I think by the time they planted corn out, you know, out state, they, they had some like in western Nebraska, it was so wet in May. Uh, but for most of the main corn growing region between Kearney and Pier, and, you know, there was very little soil moisture to start the year. So we really started the year off with a significant deficit. I think that seemed like that really... Uh, took a toll on the development of the crop. I mean, the corn seemed very short uh, compared to average for the month of June. Uh, but then, you know, we started getting rain and we had a relatively cool July for our standards. We didn't have this other than that three days stretch there late the month. We didn't have that many hot days. Um, humidity didn't seem to be too terribly bad in the month of July. Uh, but as we moved into August, we had a stretch where we had a lot of, it was very cloudy. And then it turned from that to kind of dry. And then it got, very hot and very humid, um, sort of kind of that 19th to 25th time period. And that seemed like that did a number, at least in terms of reducing the soil moisture and, and probably helping create some more water stress. Um, you know, for crops that just didn't have that deeper moisture tap into, which I think was a lot of crops, that was kind of the last straw. Uh, and for some crops in like in corn and clay in Knuckles County and some of that area down there near the Kansas border, I think the last straw was probably in, in July because they just never really even got the precipitation uh, until it was way too late. Uh, but northeastern Nebraska, I think the precipitation was a little bit later in July, uh, but I think they did very well for like mid-July through mid-August, and then they were very dry mid-August through uh, mid-September. I think the I-80 corridor, we did very well from late June through early August, and then Kind of dried out, but there were places that caught some good rains um, in late August. I think there was uh, one mesoscale convective complex that moved across the southern portion of the state, uh, made its way up to about I-80. So some places picked up two, three inches of rain. So that probably helped them um, out a little bit. But by that point, it might have been too late for some crops. Um, all I have to say is, you know, if you take a look at statewide average for the summer, it didn't look that bad precipitation-wise or temperature-wise, but I think, you know, that's why you have to kind of take a deeper look at the whole story. Um, so I wouldn't say it was the worst year weather-wise, but it certainly was not ideal overall. And in some cases, it was, you know, the, this is way too challenging. Um, so in terms of um, other impacts of weather. So we definitely had very extreme exceptional drought conditions across um, a good portion of the state, particularly in the east uh, this summer, except for the very, very far southeast. Um, we also had quite a few severe storms this summer. Uh, we had, I don't know about an unusual number of days with hail, but there was a lot of hail storms that caused a lot of damage. Uh, that area around Waco just is like a second year in a row that they've just gotten hailed out for lack of a better term. 
Um, and then, you know, we had some extreme heat that I just kind of mentioned earlier. And that was, you know, again, we're used to being hot here, but that was kind of a, a, a very unusual amount or combination of heat, humidity, and the wind that just probably was, it wasn't good for anything that I could, as far as I can see, unless of the one in a million people, I just happen to love that type of weather, which is not many. Um, but in, in terms of diseases, like what did we, what did we see in the fields this year? What do you guys been seeing coming to the clinics? Well, it was the, the year started off fairly boring in the, in the diagnostic clinic. Um, the, at least as, as far as what was coming in, I did not get very many seedling diseases came in early on and you know as we were talking about talking about weather and that that lack of soil moisture um, at planting and so we just at least for a lot of the state there just wasn't the moisture and the fungi um, they need a fair amount of moisture in order to cause infection and so I just wasn't wasn't seeing a whole lot come in you know I think about the other times of the year when we've been driving across the state and in April and it's Kind of a, a day like today where it's foggy, overcast, yeah. kind of about, you know, 60 degrees. Um, and we talking, you know, this, that's, that's good disease weather. Um, and just did not, did not see a whole lot of it um, early on. And so. No, we didn't have any days like this in the spring. No. <clears throat> yeah. Not a lot of seedling disease, but, but since it was so dry in some areas, a lot of people started irrigating corn earlier than they normally would and probably much earlier. Yeah. And so I, I think our tendency is to overwater when we have the capability of doing so. And so it did kick off some things in the irrigated fields that we didn't see in those dry land mm -hmm. or, or rain fed areas. So uh, <clears throat> it wasn't long before we did start to see some bacterial leaf streaks showing up and uh, over the summer, uh, at least in parts of South Central Nebraska and and a little further west, you know, some of that did it did move up the plant pretty fast, and some of those susceptible hybrids and all the way to the tassel very quickly, and to an alarming alarming amount. And so people uh, were asking me about that, and that was that was strictly about how much irrigating we were doing. Yeah, so you started noticing this disease probably in May, early June timeframe. June usually. Mm -hmm. um, that's been pretty typical for us because that bacterium can be active at cooler temperatures than some of the other diseases. That so is it see. is it active in the soil? It overwinters in the residue. That whether or not it's surviving in the soil remains to be seen. But uh, but certainly, if there's a history of it in the field, it's going to reappear. Sure. And we've confirmed it now. I think we're up to 75 counties in Nebraska, probably more. Where you've had this on corn. Yeah. So that 75 out of 93, that would be the majority of counties that have corn production. There's probably at least 10 that there's almost no corn production or mm -hmm. minimal corn production in the Sandhills. Um, do, do you find this is more of an issue in fields that uh, have more continuous corn or corn on corn or, you know, they, or a lack of a rotation for lack of a better term? That's harder to answer than you might think. But in general, yeah, probably. But the reality is even crop rotation does not seem to be an adequate management tool for this pathogen. And part of the reason that we believe that might be is that we know that bacterial pathogen causing bacterial leaf streak has a wide host range. And so, although we haven't confirmed it on some of the wild species, we know in testing in the lab and greenhouse and even some field testing that our, uh, our some of our common prairie grasses and some of the ornamental grasses and weeds are susceptible. And so um, I think uh, our, my student a few handful of years ago, Tara Hartman confirmed it on t about 25% of the 50 species she tested. Uh, oh, interesting. A, a lot of different grasses, things that we all recognize like uh, big blue stem and a uh, little blue stem and so your typical prairie grass exactly things were Some bailing fox up tails as well that's right two of the and foxtail species and even yellow nutsedge it's not even a grass so that would, that would also be a mix of c3 and c4 species would it not right and so to so me, it's, it's not picky not really and so i suspect if we had kept testing we would have kept finding more species but to me 
it tells me that it could be surviving and even asymptomatically on some species too. Oh, like COVID. Well, you know, so <laughs> kinda, yeah. So uh, it might explain why crop rotation and even tillage hasn't done a really good job of beating it back. So picking your hybrid, uh, working with your seed company rep to pick a good hybrid is probably your best strategy. Sure. This, um, there, I'm assuming there's probably not like a herbicide application that would really take care of it or anything else that you can really do no. about it. No, and that's complicated too because the appearance of bacterial leaf streak on some corn hybrids it looks like gray leaf spot, the fungal disease, and so, so it can be misdiagnosed easily misdiagnosed mm -hmm. on some hybrids, and that happened early on, and so people were spraying fungicides, which we use a lot now, but fungicides won't stop a bacterial pathogen, and so um, that that's something we have to keep reminding people of. And so that's, you know, that's the importance of utilizing a resource like Kyle in the diagnostic clinic. Oh, absolutely. That uh, people, you know, if you have any doubt, let us know, send a sample in and, and let us take a look. Uh, in general, though, if it starts early like that, it's going to be bacterial leaf streak because gray leaf spot needs warm temperatures. Mm -hmm. And we don't usually see it until July or after. So warm temperatures meaning you need probably overnight lows being at least in the 60s and highs well into the 80s, low yeah. 90s. So yeah. And high humidity. Higher humidity. So yeah, not not your typical Memorial Day to early June weather. No. But but yeah, I mean, even early um early on in the infection process, it's it is almost impossible to tell bacterial, it, not almost impossible, it is impossible to tell bacterial leaf streak and gray leaf spot apart just from from looking at the looking at the symptoms and i always think back to it it was a few years ago that um one of your former tech uh, field techs would bring in samples and we would all right i i would say my guess that it was gray leaf spot or bacterial leaf streak they would put their guess and we ended the year about 50 50 yeah. um so so yeah and it's you know two people that have a lot of experience looking at little specks on corn but but again that knowing if it is bacterial versus if it's fungal, because if you are applying a fungicide on a bacteria, your your clientele is not going to be very happy with that recommendation. Sure. Um, so what, what are some of the overall like impacts to the corn crop itself, like the ear, when you have bacterial leaf diseases? Well, Bacterial leaf streak specifically, we don't have good yield loss data on it. As common as it is, it's actually harder to work with. And uh, so we we did, we, we batted it around for three years trying to get good yield loss data. So I don't have that. Yeah. The good news is there's no evidence that it moves systemically in the plant. Yeah. So it's not going to work like Goss's bacterial wilt and blight that can kill plants. Now, depending on susceptibility of a hybrid, we can lose a lot of leaf area and that's how we lose yield. Sure. And so it would be more similar to maybe how gray leaf spot works. Uh, so it, it mostly just affects that leaf itself. To the best of our knowledge, so it, yes. So if it does actually form a decent ear and starts filling out, it's not going to spread into the ear and kill the ear. Corn. It does not appear so and okay. in the testing that's been done. And so... Most of the time, it probably doesn't cause measurable yield loss when it's minor. So normally we don't worry about it, but there are some very susceptible hybrids, especially a few popcorn hybrids that can be very susceptible. And uh, that bacterium is also, it produces a very bright yellow pigment. And so sometimes you can see very bright dis yellow discoloration. It's mustard yellow. On the leaves. Uh, yeah. And when you hold them up to the light and backlight them with the sun, especially. So sometimes that might give you a clue. It might be bacterial leaf streak instead of gray leaf spot, but on some hybrids, that's just harder to see. Mm -hmm. Sure. And is this something that you could detect? Like if you're just driving down the road, you looking at your field, like, oh, there's some years that are, you know, some uh, corn rows that don't look very good, or do you really actually get a field in the scout? It'd have to be pretty dang bad to see it on your 70 mile per hour <laughs> scouting. Sure. <laughs> So we, I, I just always think there's value in getting out and walking in there uh, mm -hmm. deeper than the, than the uh, first few rows, you know, so. Sure. Yeah, we kind of talked about the importance of scouting soybean last mm -hmm. week, and 
I think kind of like you mentioned that people do probably scalp corn better than soybean. That's a general rule, but probably mm -hmm. not always. But this sounds like a um, another case of where it probably is to your benefit to actually go out and sample more than just you know, a couple of rows and just see what you actually have. And um, I'm guessing recommendation for this is if you aren't sure, which in a lot of cases like that's probably going to be a case like send it in and get a yeah. test. And if it's, you know, is it, um, if it's a bacterial disease, then, you know, don't, don't spray the fungicide. If it's gray, uh, gray leaf, uh, then you probably can't put a fungicide on that would be effective. Mm -hmm. um, so let's move into that. So how much of that did we see this year? Gray leaf spot? Um, you know, early on, it's, it's kind of a, at least from what I saw, it was, we had two different years. And, uh, you know, early on, it was, when it was very dry, there was barely anything coming in. And even through, at least in the clinic, the first part of July, I was still wasn't getting a whole lot of corn, corn diseases. And, and then in one, one role that the, the, the one role that the diagnostic clinic serves is uh, we help the Nebraska Department of Agriculture do their phytosanitary inspections. And so they need to collect leaf tissue from all of the corn that is set for the export market. And we need to to test the tissue and see what what are we seeing, and a lot of those it probably has past regulations. Exactly, yeah. Because depending on which, you know, every every country has their list of diseases that they do not want to come into that country. The United States has one that's our select agent list. Mexico has one. Canada does. China does. The European Union. So, so we uh, we help help dictate where where a lot of this crop can go on the international market. But a lot of our corn samples um, are collected around that July 20th to July 25th period. And even in the, the phytosanitary samples that I was receiving, there was not a ton of disease. But then two weeks later, the samples that I was getting the first part of August were just loaded with them. Um, and so I don't know if that's similar kind of, you know, with what you were seeing across the state, Tamara, but at least for what was coming into the clinic, um, it was very, very little, especially very little fungal disease pressure. And so, again, we had had a lot of bacterial leaf streak. Um, we had a fair amount of gosses wilt as well. The bacteria was much more active this year, I thought, than the, than the fungi was because, I mean, barely... You know, rust, we didn't really see, didn't see a whole lot of, of rust early on when we normally do. But later in the year, once it was kind of too late to do anything about them, that's when a lot of these fungal diseases started to show up a lot more in the diagnostic clinic. So and I'm assuming the fungal diseases are probably strongly correlated to temperature and humidity, probably particularly humidity. Yep. So what you were just referring to is July you know, by July 25th, we actually, I think in Lincoln, we had not had an overnight low over 70 for the entire year, which that's one of the latest we've, that's about the latest we've ever gone without having an overnight low over 70, which implies that your humidity is not real, real high. Mm -hmm. So even though we were getting some pretty good rains in the June, first half of July, we were also seeing some cooler temperatures. Like we, we weren't just excessively humid overall. And then... It was probably about July 25th is when we had about that first three or four day stretch where it was quite hot and also very humid. Like we had heat index values well over 110, um, at least in east central parts of northeastern, southeastern Nebraska. Uh, and I think it was also pretty hot um, out state as well. We got closer to Kansas border, the humidity was a bit lower, which is a little more typical, um, you know, but warmer temperatures. Uh, and then in the first week of August, the temperatures cooled off quite a bit, but it was very cloudy in the eastern part, portion of the state. And humidity, like dew points were staying in the upper 60s, a little bit 70s, and temperatures were kind of in that 80 to 84 range for highs. So it was very, very high humidity, you know, probably persisted for quite a while. So I'm guessing that maybe that was why you saw the explosion in diseases between like 25th of July and like maybe the second week of August. That, that makes sense. <clears throat> It does, but you know, those cool night temperatures that we had early, mm -hmm. they did allow northern corn leaf blight to develop. And so we were running across northern corn leaf blight even earlier. And so that did continue into later season. And when we got more humidity, it just, it blew up later on. I saw more of that this year than I, 
I'm used to seeing, but I think we have over the last handful of years too. Yeah. What exactly is Northern corn blight? Oh, this is, you know, this is another fungal disease and it's one that's, uh, it, it produces lesions that are larger. They're kind of cigar shaped. They've got rounded ends on them and it can cause substantial yield loss, but it, it matters which hybrid you've got out there, how susceptible it is. My concern over northern corn leaf blight, and especially a year where we had a lot of storm damage, is because it looks a lot like Goss's bacterial Wilton blight with those big lesions. And it got hard to tell those apart later mm -hmm. when Gosses began to show up after we did have some, some hail and wind damage. And Gosses, that's bacterial? It is. So it's another example of something that looks very similar to a bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. It can. And so, I mean, there's some little characteristics we tell people to look for, like the little freckles on the edges of a Gauss's wilt lesion or the shiny exudate on top. But we know now some hybrids just don't show that as well. And so Kyle and I started playing the guessing game. Is mm -hmm. it Gauss's? Is it is it Northern Horn Leaf Blight? And I, I missed it some too. And so I started having to stick it under a microscope a lot more than I normally would. Yeah, I mean, we certainly had samples come in where it was the, you know, was I was just doing the triage. Okay, this is this this is Goss as well, and then we would the, in the quick way that we we check for bacteria underneath the microscope is we look for bacterial streaming, and so typically it's going to you know you're going to have upwards of maybe ten thousand bacterial cells inside of that single plant cell um, to cause disease. And so when we cut it open and look under the microscope, we can see those bacteria just gushing out. And a lot of samples that I, again, that I was very confident was Goss's wilt. I wasn't finding any of that bacterial streaming and would then do, would do a wet mount to look for any fungal structures and a lot of the spores of, of the Northern corn leaf blight fungus. So again, the, you know, we humans, we, we humans are so smart. We know we know what everything is supposed to do, but the fungus, the bacteria, they they don't care. They don't they don't read the books. They don't know what their what symptoms they are supposed to cause. And when you have weird weather conditions with new hybrids, things can just look very different. Yeah. When there's a probably, I think as I thought more about it, there's probably a good explanation because. You know, the way that our companies, all of us look for those key characteristics in our hybrids when we're in the field rating, the Gosses wilt, the Northern Corn Leaf Blight, we're probably selecting against hybrids that show those visible characteristics. And so maybe the ones that don't show it real clearly, maybe they're slipping through yeah. more often, more common. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating here, but I just want people to know. Don't uh, don't be fooled by something that uh, it may look like what you think it does, but we probably ought to routinely still get a sample submitted to, mm -hmm. to confirm it. Yep. So some hybrids may show northern corn leaf blight a little bit more than others, say with gosses. Um, did you guys, did you see a prevalence of northern corn leaf blight more in some parts of the state than others, or is it kind of all over the place? You know, traditionally, it's been more of a northern disease, but we did see it as far west as the Grand Island area that I know of, maybe a little bit further west. And not to say that it was severe, but I think it surprised people that how, in spite of how dry it had been, it was showing up. And I think sometimes we often overestimate how much water these fungi need. Some of them just need some high humidity in the canopy which isn't that hard to achieve if you're sure. irrigating some. No, it's very easy to achieve if you're irrigating, which they probably irrigating a lot more this year than they probably have. Exactly. Well, they would have irrigated quite a bit in 2022 as well, but uh, they started irrigating much earlier this year. So you think that maybe had any impact on its prevalence? I, I would say probably for, for northern corn leaf blight, yeah. But in, in the end, I don't think it was a huge yield buster. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, don't, I don't think... Any of the diseases widespread were. There's other things I was more concerned about as they moved, like tar spot moving in. Uh, I want to make sure we do talk about that at some point. But uh, northern probably 
surprised a few people that we were still seeing it. So, Just because we were so dry early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we did really kind of have a transition to, um, you know, from cooler nights, lower humidity, certainly lower dew points than we would normally would have in May and June to, um, you know, wetter and then a lot more humid. So, like, we ended up being... You know, early in the summer, I would have thought, well, we're not going to have to deal with any humidity this summer because it's you know we're going to be completely desiccated by mid July. Then we started getting a, lot of, getting a lot of rain, at least in most of the state. Um, so things greened up, and you know, corn was able to um, be better than I think it probably certainly could have been, um, or you know, probably was the projections in mid June. And I just actually just checked the USDA's um, projections for the state, uh, at least for their. Uh, crop production report they released earlier this month. They are showing 100, uh, 174 bushel acre average corn for the state, uh, which would be up nine bushel an acre from last year, about 1.67 billion bushels, uh, which is quite a, was a, uh, quite a bit from last year. But that's probably also reflective of a lot higher acreage numbers this year. Um, you know, just based on weather alone, that number seems reasonable to me. I think the southeast is got quite a bit higher corn yields this year. Uh, certainly anything rain fed in the York to Aurora down to Nelson, that area is probably significantly lower than it was in 2022, or probably lower in some cases been since the 1950s. Um, but you know, the irrigated probably is, I'm guessing was around average this year, maybe slightly under, probably somewhat under, but I don't think it was like 20 points under trend. Um, and they probably would have better corn yields in western Nebraska this year than they probably have had in a couple of years. So I'm assuming those numbers are probably you know within within reason. I, I would be really, really shocked if in January they say that we manage 185 bushels an acre. And I would be surprised if it was worse than last year's. I mean, there was definitely better precipitation for a lot more places this year than last year. Um so you you mentioned you don't think the diseases probably took a huge toll on the yield that would be sort of reflected within the numbers. Um, have there have we had years where you know in general the weather, just at least in terms of precipitation and lack of uh, really really hot days, we thought oh yeah we're gonna have a bumper year and then the disease issues just really knock knock down the yield. Have we had that in the state at, at times? Maybe nineteen. I, I think in patchy places around the state. Uh, I think back to 2016, I'm sorry, 2006, when we had southern rust so bad in south central Nebraska. I remember it because I had just been here about a year and it was a surprise to me as much as anybody how severe it became. Uh, But we were set up for it. You know, we had late plant, a lot of late planted corn out there. We had a wet spring, late planted corn. Late planted corn tends to be more prone to develop diseases because you've got a younger plant later in the season or vulnerable to these things and southern rust moved in from the southern states before we were really that's before we really had monitoring maps and we were following it closely that that was the first time it really ever appeared in the state of nebraska then well it'd been here but it had never been severe to that extent and that was right at the beginning when we started to use more fungicides so people that use them saw huge returns on them and uh if you didn't you saw huge losses and then it resulted in severe lodging and so there was secondary loss too and a lot of us doing research in the field and walking plots and fields came out orange because there were so many spores out there and we've had patchy southern rust like that before that's a disease that puts the fear in a lot of people especially in southern Mm -hmm. nebraska we've read about that one and it is one we can control with a fungicide if we get it on fast enough um other diseases yeah and what would you say you said 2019 well i was just thinking that 19 well obviously that was a year where some people probably couldn't get in their fields at all because of the flooding from the previous spring but if you just take a look at precipitation temperature by all accounts that was it was a wet year we didn't have a lot of heat other than maybe a little bit in july um but the overall yield numbers for the state were not real great They, they weren't terrible they weren't it wasn't a great year so I was just wondering, maybe it's because of the prevalence of high humidity, if there were more disease issues. Usually, generally speaking, probably um, that that time period, we'd have been watching more bacterial leaf streak and we would have been watching quite a few things during that time period. Um, but 
that was when tar spot made its way across Iowa and it stopped about the Missouri River right in that western Iowa. So we knew it was there, but then it was so dry right after that for two more years that it didn't make its way across into Nebraska. And so uh, tar spot and that fungus movement in Nebraska wasn't confirmed until fall, October of 21. And so since then, we've been racing around the state tracking movement of that further west. Well, and in that fall of fall of 21, we confirmed it was a lot over a Sunday through a, a Tuesday that we confirmed it in eight different counties, um, right. pretty much along the entire eastern eastern edge of Nebraska. Yeah, and a lot of that's because, you know, when you're looking for something and you're out, you know, you're beating the path, uh, you're more likely to find it. And ironically, you suddenly got a sample from extreme southeast Nebraska mm -hmm. where we didn't expect it. And so I, I slid tar spot into the conversation because it's always forefront of my mind right now. But, you know, we have a nice monitoring map now. And there was no indication that it was in northwest Missouri or extreme southwest Iowa at that point. So we were focusing efforts in that northeast, east central part of the state. Sure. So by 80 north. Yeah. And so when we got a severe sample suddenly from Richardson County, it was quite a shock. And we had to we had to remobilize things to. Yep. And, so, uh, and talking to the talking to the growers so yeah you know I, I think i saw a little bit of it last year and then this year it, yeah uh, yeah the 21 it just it just took off for them but what exactly is tar spot well tar spot is caused by a fungus called phylocoromatus in short it was first confirmed in the u.s in 2015 they blamed a tropical storm for bringing it into indiana and illinois However it happened, it's it's spread since then. So that was the first time it was noticed and observed in the U.S. In the U.S. Now, it's been in Latin America for decades. And down there, it's it's been an important disease, but there's multiple fungi that uh, synergistically cause this, and a couple different ones. And they believe more severe when you've got both of them. Thankfully, at this point, we're only dealing with one of them, and that and that's enough for now. And so from northern Illinois and northern Indiana... Uh, you know, the, for the first two or three years, it, it didn't do a whole lot. Um, so 15, 16, 17. It was, yeah. And it wasn't until about 18. I think we had a little wetter year that year. And it finally moved a lot and it became more severe in that part of the Midwest. Yes, it was pretty wet in 18, uh, north of, along and north of I-80. It was pretty dry. It was very, very dry in northeast Kansas, northwest Missouri, southern Iowa, and then like uh Donald State, Illinois, but it was mm -hmm. pretty wet here into the east and north. Mm -hmm. So that would make sense. That makes perfect sense because this fungus is heavily dependent on weather conditions or field conditions, I should say, moisture. Uh, and we've believed uh, that cooler temperatures are more favorable. At least the fungus can be active then. I think we might be you know, pulling back a little bit because it, it seems to be active even in warmer temperatures too. We still have a lot to learn about it, but this fungus produces black structures on the leaf. It literally looks like you dipped a, a paintbrush into tar or black paint and slung it on the leaf. And in each one of those black spots that we have some debates on what, you know, different groups are calling mm -hmm. them different things like stromata or, or I don't know what, what you guys in diagnostic world are calling it's it. Pretty today. much gone to just black spots. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's easy. <laughs> Everyone knows what you're talking about. Yeah. So, well, they do, they don't call it tar spot for nothing. No. And so each one of those is producing uh, hundreds or thousands of spores and sometimes two different types, a sexual type and an asexual type. So it's a it's a little bit unusual, and you know when you start looking at that and some of the other corn pathogens, but it is spread by with wind and and rains and irrigation splashing, and so uh, if you look in parts of the country like in like in Michigan where they do have some irrigation, mm -hmm. it's much more severe under the pivots, and so we knew that this has a high higher risk when it does make it to Nebraska and that we were going to need to be on top of it and watching for it much closer. Well, especially once it gets west of Lincoln. That's where most of the irrigation exactly. is. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, it was pretty slow to move in those eastern most counties. And so now it has it has gone out almost to central Nebraska. We've confirmed it in 47 counties now. And that's in a line from, you know, Adams and Hall, you know, the Grand Island, Hastings, north, straight north, all the way up to eastern Holt County. Oh, and wow. So okay. Talking, so basically 281. Exactly. 281 east. all the way up. So that's that's also along where I live, too. So sure. Um, and so you're going up through Greeley and Howard and Wheeler and eastern Holt County. That's as far west as we've confirmed it now. And it'll keep going west. And so we're making efforts to track it, making sure people know it's, you know, it's in your neighborhood now. Not that it's going to be severe the first year, maybe not the first couple of years that it's there. But once it moves into an area, it will overwinter and it'll redevelop when conditions are favorable. And is there anything in the winter that would get rid of it? Well, at this point, probably not. Uh, it's also unclear whether the fungus is only overwintering on the residue, the old crop debris that's infected, or is it is it overwintering in the soil? We we don't know the answer to that, and so. The question about crop rotation, tillage, things like that, we, we can't even answer just yet. But realistically, if it's in neighboring fields, since it is a mobile disease, it might be uh, less effective anyway. And so now we turn our attention to those eastern counties where now the fungus has been there. Two years. Two, now we're coming up, you know, we're getting closer. Three years so next year. It was first observed in 2021. In Nebraska, eastern Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, so the very eastern portion of the states. So in 2022, I'm guessing, was not an ideal year for tar spot that most of the state is given that we, you know, kind of cascaded into drought in July. It was very, very dry. So probably not the most optimal conditions for it. But this year, where we did, you know, have a good, give it, you know, good bit more moisture for at least the mid portion of the summer. And it seems like it's spread significantly. You know, we also had an unusual amount of easterly wind flow this spring <laughs> no serious like yeah. we had persistent easterly winds uh, because of we had a large dome of high pressure sitting over southern ontario so we had dry easterly winds uh, in this part of the country for quite a while i la i laugh about that because it helps me explain to people why most weather moves west to east for us dummies that aren't meteorologists mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know we do notice, I know in some, I don't know, low pressure systems, that's how we first got it moved into Nebraska in fall of 21. Uh, I could probably almost well name the point in time where that would have happened. Um, probably in September. Yeah, well, there was also um, a storm in October where we had uh, pretty strong easterly winds uh, with, with a lot of rain. So, yeah, that's, that's probably how that probably has gotten. It's probably, you can probably pick the low pressure systems Going back to 2015, six, like, oh, let's probably move this further west and, you know, so on and so forth. So we could probably use those, you know, that type of information to help us predict where to look next. Because uh, it was October 5th when I found it with my Iowa State colleagues. We went out on a tar spot tour and found it in those, I don't know, handful of counties up there. In 21. In October of 21. Yeah. yeah. If it had been there at least one to two weeks before that. Sure. Probably. Right around that same time, I went to a, a hardware store and I was looking at their ornamental corn husks and There's corn stalks that they had. And what do I find on the leaves? But I find tar spot <laughs> on the, the ornamental shocks. Covering it. Yep. And what store was this at? Uh, uh, it was a store. A box store. Yep. It was a, 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 a hard worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, in Lincoln? Yep. Well, huh. the point is, is that they're getting those those shocks from other states. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, no one's thinking about these things, but people like Kyle and I and our and our diligent crop consultants out there. And so uh, that was a source of aggravation. It was. Uh, it, yeah. Just have to <laughs> shake your head and, and smile, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you know, well, another... I'll just do the same thing about disaster movies. Yeah. <laughs> but another thing with tar spot is we, you know, we often talk about how easy tar spot is to identify because it's, there's not, there's not a ton of diseases that give you nice black leaf specks on the, on the. That would be very distinguishable on a green leaf. 
It, it, you would think so. On a green leaf. On a green leaf, yep. But then there's, you know, we also will get, so insects that are feeding. Insects poop. A lot. It a turns lot. out. <laughs> and, and so it's the, it was, you know. Oh, I, I see where you're going with this. So for the first, you know, for, for the for the month of July, most of the, the tar spot suspect samples that were coming into the word. clinic I mean, I would just, I would joke about a four letter word. Yes. Yep. And it's just, I mean, you would go and scrape it up, you know, just um, maybe you would have to, you know, spit on your thumb or something like that to moisten it up. But you, sure enough, you could just kind of scrape it right off. Whereas tar spot, it doesn't scrape off at all. And so that's, that's really one of the big things that we talk about is making sure that you are trying to scratch that off to see, is it, you just have insects that are, you know, insect frass or, is actually actually tar spot um, but then later in the year some of our rust diseases they will per, they will produce some black overwintering structures and so southern rust is um, in common rustable as well but I was getting a lot of those samples later in the year and the, you know they're not they're not rubbing off but underneath the microscope pretty easy to, to tell that oh this is these are the overwintering spores of southern rust, not not the tar spot pathogen. So, and even then, after that, as the corn is a nest, then you have actually the beneficial fungi move in. We're starting to have cool, damp nights, a lot of dew that time of year. Mm -hmm. Those beneficial fungi, what we call saprophytic fungi, they're growing happily in the moist conditions on this dead plant, breaking it down which is good for us because it'll go into the soil and we can reuse the nutrients from it forevermore. But a lot of those saprophytic fungi make black spots on the leaves too. And so it's really hard to tell. And in fact, when we have a lot of that it uh, in people combines going through the field late in the season, they look like they're smoking because there's so much debris and black, black, what looks like dust. Mm -hmm. Okay. Diseases. That would explain why sometimes it looks like they're, like something's almost on fire. Yeah. And, and I mean combine. Okay. And, and they're 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 good fungi, but I mean it's still particulate matter too. So if, I mean if you're sensitive to respiratory things, maybe you should wear a mask, but they uh they're confusing for tar spot ID for for folks that haven't seen it before. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think once you've seen tar spot on a nice green leaf, you probably would really, know what it is. Yeah, then I think you're really tuned into it and Yeah find it's like morel hunting but yep, yeah. it, it, but it sounds like you know for a lot of farmers this year this would have been the first time they've ever had it in their fields if they if, if they had it that is some of them so yeah. it's just like there's probably still some unfamiliarity with it um so in terms of managing it's what have farmers um in iowa and illinois been doing to manage our spots as they've been dealing with it for longer well the good news is that they've got it first and they've had a few years to work with it and learn about it before it got to us. And fungicide trials from my uh, colleagues over there have been effective. And now we we know from experts like uh, Darcy Talenko out of Purdue University, who coordinates a lot of our tar spot trials now and reports on them, that our colleagues are showing that some of the contemporary fungicides that are blends of active ingredients like the two and especially three-way products are performing very well for tar spot. The difficult part of that is when to apply it because tar spot, uh, at first, you know, it was a late season disease. It came in very late, probably not causing much yield loss, but what it is doing is it's becoming established. And so when it does develop earlier and you start seeing it during the grain field stages, it has the potential to have a big impact on yield. And so once it's moved into an area and you've had it for a while, we do need to start watching more closely for it. We need to select hybrids that perform better against it. Talk to your seed company rep about that if you're in that zone. Um, because of fungicides, you know, a lot of us are applying fungicides right now at tassel, full tassel like a VTR1. Sometimes it's late enough that that fungicide may have worn off before tar spot becomes problematic enough that you need treatment. So we find people having to retreat or reapply a fungicide. And there's even 
examples in other part, other areas where they've applied fungicides three times during a season. Whether or not they needed it, you know, we don't have good data on on some of those things, but it really matters when it shows up, how susceptible the hybrid is, the weather conditions, and a lot of other things that make it complicated when you when you call somebody and say, should I spray? Uh, and so that's why we ask a handful of questions about things like that. It's not as not straightforward. But if you do get it on at the right time, it is very effective it or can, can be. be very effective if you it have the right be. blend. That's right. That's right. And some of our commercially available ones right now are very effective and they have uh, active ingredients from all three of the fungicide classes that are common right now. All three, I say that uh, because we're only primarily using three classes of fungicides right now. And we do have products labeled for use in corn that have all of them in them. And those are the ones that have performed probably the best on rotar spot management. But, you know, it's, it's we had touched on this in the, when we were talked talked about soybeans last week, but, you know, that first line of defense should always be genetics. And so, and so looking to fight, if you have, if you dealt with tar spot a lot this year or, or last year, you know, when you're coming back into that field or even surrounding fields would really recommend working with your, um, with your seed dealer so that you can, you can get a hybrid that does have some good resistance to it because the, at least some, a lot of the data that I was seeing, the, even when the, when they kind of missed the timing of the fungicide, if you still had a highly resistant variety of corn to tar spot, it still ended up yielding much better than, much better than those highly susceptible ones. And so again, working with your seed dealer, I doubt that there's going to be any sort of extra additional tech fee for the tar spot resistance. I'm not, not quite sure on the corn side of things. It's not an engineered trait, so I wouldn't expect it. The complication is that the fungus is hard to work with. And so <clears throat> in the early years of tar spot, it's not like, you know, we could grow the fungus in batches and they could inoculate plots. Seed companies have struggled in the early years of tar spot getting ratings on their hybrids because they need to make disease happen in these nurseries to see how these hybrids are going to react to rate them. And right now, there's not a lot of companies providing disease ratings for tar spot in their seed catalogs. And so... Um, Is that just because it has been prevalent enough? There, that's partly it, but it's um, it's also being difficult to work with. It's slowing that process down. Well, when they have established nurseries now, uh, year after year, now you can get more reliable data. It just almost needs and to be around for another three or four years. That Well, that's exactly right. And, and now that's starting to happen back east, and we're starting to see some ratings. But in general, internally, a lot of the seed companies are aware which lines they think will perform better. And so it, it really is worth a conversation with your seed company agronomists say, you know, hey, I've, I had tar spot this past year. Maybe we should look at getting a hybrid out there that's going to be more resistant or perform better in it, in that disease situation. I'm assuming tar spot is probably a much bigger fear than or the corn leaf blight and the other diseases we talked about earlier in terms of yield loss. Well, you, you have, uh, it's, it's also an unknown. We You know, we're not clear on how it's going to perform under irrigation, except that irrigation pivot irrigation over the top, it's going to make it worse. But yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, there has been some substantial yield loss reported in some of those Eastern states. I shouldn't say Eastern, in the Midwest, East of us. Sure. Iowa, uh, Illinois, Indiana. Yeah, the I states, right. They've measured 50 bushel yield loss when the disease is severe. Now that's, that's an extreme case. But under the right conditions, you know, the susceptible hybrid, the wet conditions, maybe mm -hmm. cooler temperatures, maybe it showed up early. That's what it could do. And so that's not at all, you know, common, but uh, the potential is there. And so it's it's worthy of your attention. Do you think more, more people are aware of it now in the state? Gosh, I hope so. We've been talking about it for years now. But hopefully things like this will help get the message out. Seed companies are doing a really good job mm -hmm. talking about it. Our crop consultants are on top of it. And so we I like to think we all work in a network and we're all here to help each other. And 
there's still a lot of people learning about it now, but we're doing our best to get the message out. Yeah, I mean, I really think the biggest thing is just the fear and the the unknown. I mean, the we don't don't have a ton of experience working with it under the pivot, and the and it's, you can give all the management recommendations in the world, but the reality is that most growers they just want to know when and what do I apply because that's that's going to be the easiest. I mean, they have a lot of acres that they're having to manage, and and I think that just that fear of we don't know is is really the really driving a lot of it. I do want to let people know that we have initiated a number of experiments, though, in different parts of the state with Tar Spot and acknowledge the Nebraska Corn Board for providing us support for projects looking at the impact of irrigation, irrigation equipment, scheduling, and we're collaborating with uh, our awesome irrigation engineers here at the University of Nebraska. Uh, looking at that, and also the North Central IPM Center, looking at genetic variability to make sure that uh, we understand that it's, you know, it's not changing as it's moved further west, the fungus that is. And so we're working on it. It's just early in the process since it's just moved in. Sure. And we don't have answers yet, but they'll Good be enough. seeing. Yeah, maybe maybe in a, a year or two, uh, we'll be up here and I'll have my grad student come up and we'll tell you what we've learned. Excellent. But in terms of monitoring, it sounds like we are very on top of it. Um, where can people go to find uh, its prevalence? I think the easiest way to get there, I, I like to go on Google because I can't memorize websites. Sure. And so uh, on Google, if you if you type in corn IPM pipe uh, or and tar spot, it should just pop up. And this map is updated live. And so... Uh, Who runs it? So this is... This is run out of uh, one of our colleagues out of the University of Georgia, the IPM Pipe Center. And so, uh, for example, I update the map in Nebraska, but I can't do that until I have a sample or Kyle has a sample or someone an extension receives a sample from you. So if you think you've got it, but you haven't seen it, your county lit up in gold yet. Uh, we'd like to we'd like to have documentation of that to let people know it's moving in their direction. And so um, when you look at the map, the way you interpret that is if counties are colored in gray, it means it was it was historically sometime in the past confirmed there. If they're gold, which a lot of them are all in Nebraska right now, because we've confirmed it this current year. And so uh, when we turn over the calendar on January 1, they'll all go gray and we start over. And when we find it again, counties will turn gold. And one one thing that we've been doing in the last for the last two years, um, just to get an idea of where where in the state tar spot really is, is we've been offering free testing for it in the diagnostic clinic. And and we haven't haven't really had these conversations yet, but since we are really getting into the, you know, it's now on the eastern edge of the south central part of the state, but now it's you know next year it will continue that westward spread or might make it past Holdridge. Yeah. And so, so I, you know, I'm the, we will probably do something similar next year as, as well, where it's again, just, we, it's very beneficial for us to know where it is. Um, I always joke that pathologists love coloring in counties. Um, you know, we love, we love having maps and being able to color it that, that positive color um, is always, is always a lot of fun. Um, I know I was, Unfortunately, I got, I took Holt County from, from Tamara oh. before, before she could get it. Um, <laughs> I could do that to Tamara. My backyard. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, we'll, uh, so if you are suspecting tar spot and you're in your field yet this year, as you're, you know, you're just curious, are these black spots on the leaves? Is it our good saprophytic fungi that are helping with nutrient cycling or is it tar spot? You can still send in a sample and for, you know, there'll be no fee and I'll just say, yes, there's, this is tar spot or it's only the, only the saprophytic things. And I, I foresee us doing that again next year as well. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad you brought that up too, because, you know, we will continue to watch it move further West. There are people though, that I know believe that it won't make it out to Western Nebraska. And they've told me that. But I, 
I want to, I want people to understand that irrigation is enough moisture. It's unclear, maybe, you know, what it's really going to do in those more arid conditions. Uh, it could slow it down, but I don't want us to be under the impression that it might not make it that far west because we don't know that. But we'll, we will continue to chase it around and make sure uh, we document where we find it. I just don't want people to let their guard down if they're in that western uh, third or half of the state. Sure, yeah. So if you're North Platte, that area, yeah. I mean, not there currently, but it's not impossible. And the most corn that is in that part of the state is generally irrigated unless you're in a overappropriated area and then they right. you more or less have to have some acreage to set aside where the rain fed and maybe those acreages are less susceptible the irrigated ones could be especially if it is just enough can't be humidity and moisture and it has gotten more humid in that part of the state in the last 20 years with um you know more corn and um you know i just dew points are probably increasing across the state so i mean that higher humidity probably would allow it to maybe survive there. Maybe 30 years ago, the weather would not have allowed it to survive there. So it's just, you know, changing conditions will allow for different things to survive or thrive that maybe would not have otherwise. And that could be the case for other diseases as well that we might not have seen out there as much, especially after they've had a wet year. Like mm -hmm. this. So I, I just hope people listening across the state will just keep their eyes open, know that you've got resources all the way across the state. And we're here to help. Excellent. Anything else for the good of the cause? Oh, I, you know, one, one thing that I just have to mention, um, you know, it's the, the earlier that you can get out and collect samples, the, the better, you know, this time of year as people are out harvesting and they're, they're doing their kind of, I call it yield monitor scouting. It's the, or they're just not seeing as much seed drop, um, drop in these certain areas of parts of the field. If you send a sample in right now, it's going to be really difficult to say this is the disease that we found. This is the reason for your for your decreased yield. Um, more often, it's we we have found these diseases. Whether or not they they impacted yield, we can't say. But on on corn, now we're see we are seeing a fair amount of stock rot issues, um, and so I'm having a lot of corn that comes in, and they're they're complaining about. About yield, uh, just, it wasn't yielding quite what they expected, and you split those stems, and I'm seeing a lot of discoloration around the nodes. Maybe there's some pink kind of fuzzy fungal growth um, around those nodes and in the lower crown as well. I mean, that's a, a sure sign of, of some of our stock rods. And so fusarium stock rot is is the big one that we're that, that I'm seeing so far this year, but there's also seen a, lot, a fair amount of charcoal rot as well in some of the drier areas. Um, and then the other thing that and this kind of ties back to early season and some of the weather conditions that we had early on is that there are a lot of growers that I'm talking to that are complaining about a complete lack of a root system. And so they're, they're going out and trying to pull just maybe hand harvest a hand harvest on something. And they're pulling that entire plant out of the ground. And whether that is, you know, the, what exactly caused that that negative root growth we we can't say for sure but i really think those those extreme dry conditions that we had early on sure. it just it roots are going to go down where they find moisture if they can't find moisture they're not going to go anywhere yep at least, then, that, at least that's that's what i remember reading i think uh some guys from uh Syngenta told me that several years ago that the roots will they'll go down as long as they can find moisture mm -hmm. and you know, I think when we think about shallow roots, I tend to think more of it was so wet that they didn't have to go down any further. This year it was they didn't go any further because there wasn't anything down there. And in addition to that, too, I don't think you mentioned crown rot. Um, we've got, you know, there's things are so complex in the soil and in that root zone. Mm -hmm. We've got root rotting pathogens. We've got another disease that we're watching closely, and now my lab's working on uh, crown rot disease that we don't fully understand, but we know it's killing plants prematurely, like how the stalk rot disease does. And so uh, if you're seeing some late season plant death, like Kyle said, it's probably too late to figure it out right now as these plants are already 
degrading. But mm -hmm. earlier in the season, when you first start seeing a problem, it's the very best time. And to me, that's a that's a windshield survey time. You can mm -hmm. see that from the road on the hillsides and things. And that's when samples are helpful. And we might be able to figure out what's causing it. Whether or not there's something we can do about it, especially right then, but maybe in the future is another issue. And, and if you are seeing any of those, again, that, that premature plant death, we need the entire plant. Um, and so if you just, if somebody just collects some leaves and sends those into the clinic, those don't tell me anything. We need everything. I need, I need everything. And the people will say, well, the corn's corn's seven feet tall. So that's, I have a skylight in my lab that gets up to 20 feet. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, we don't care if it gets bald. Any yep. roots and everything. Yep, yep. Because yep. yeah, so often, especially with these this crown rot disease, I've had a lot of plants come in where they just, would just use a maybe like a corn knife and cut it, you know, two three inches above the soil line, but that misses the crown, and that's where that's where this disease is is really hanging out. And so I get the stalk, and maybe there's something in the stalk that I can find, but the the big problem I mean, we're still missing. And so again, that as much as much plant material as you can, we deal with, we get our lab gets very dirty. Um, and so I I don't mind getting giant root balls in and breaking all the breaking all the dirt off. That's one of my favorite things to do, actually. So very cool. Okay. Yeah. Um Thank you so much for having us today. No, mm -hmm. thank you very much. Again, this includes uh, today's podcast. So thank you very much, Kyle and Tamara. And hope to have you guys on again soon. All right. Thank you, Eric. Yep.